morning, everyone. Find Second uh, Peter chapter one verse twelve. Just one verse. I'm just so thankful to to see everyone. It's it's wonderful crowd this morning. Thank you so much for all being here. Uh, let's read the word of God for Second uh, Peter chapter one verse twelve, and then we will uh, we'll begin our journey through it. And in Second Peter chapter one verse twelve. Uh, Peter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though now you, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Uh, Peter calls our attention to two ideas. Uh, two ideas here. Uh, and I'm going to take those and we're going to kind of begin our, our way through this. First he talks about truth, or the idea of truth. Establishing the truth that you have. And he also talks about uh, brings up this idea of, of knowing them, of knowledge. So truth. Now, and I'm not going to talk about the whole Greek a whole lot because it's not really who I am. I like to mention it because I'm on a journey just like you are to understand the scriptures more today than I did yesterday. And so it requires going and taking a look at some of the, uh, of the original languages. The word aletheia in, in the Greek, it's a, it really specifically within this context means divine truth revealed to man. Now, I'm not going to, you know, parse English words here, but it's something deeper than fact. Okay, fact is part of truth, but fact isn't all of truth. There are deeper truths than just facts. Uh, I guess probably the best example I could share would be for those people in this room who, who've either taught history or, or, been, or been students of history. Uh, the dates are the facts. The truth lie a little deeper, don't they, brother? And we tend to concentrate nowadays not just on when something happened, but on the truth of why it happened. The, the deeper impact upon society of why an event happened or not. So when we talk about truth, we speak of fact, but we also speak of much, much deeper things. We speak of the kind of things that transform men's hearts and also knowledge. Now, that word knowledge, um, epignosis, is perception or discernment, recognition, or intuition, those are good synonyms for it. But the idea that it is what we perceive and, and also what we are able to discern by way of the scriptures, by way of the Holy Spirit, what we recognize, what we recognize is true. Now, I think if there's any word that troubled me as I began my journey through and try to pray through this and talk about exactly what God wanted me to see in this, that was the idea right there. That one synonym for epignosis, for knowledge, which was recognition. Recognition. We live in a, an extremely contradictory world today where, where the new, for like, I guess it's going to make me sound really old, I don't care. Um, the newfangled carries more weight in the hearts of many than, than the tried or the authoritative. The Bible is the ultimate authority over our lives in every facet of them. It is the ultimate authority because it is penned literally by God himself. I can say that and it is verifiable and true by the witness of the scriptures. I cannot make people recognize the Bible as that. Do you understand the difference? Because there's a huge difference, right? One of these days, we'll all die and face judgment, either the beam of seat of Christ or the great white throne of judgment. The reality is this, at that time, everybody's going to find out that the Bible was both 
infinitely truthful and absolutely factual. They're going to find that out. The job along the way is to make as many as people, many people as possible recognize or regard the Bible as the ultimate authority over their lives. Now, if you really want to define, there's so many ways you can define a Christian. If you really want to define the idea of Christianity, it is a group of people who've allowed the Bible to define truth for them. So if you do that, if you allow the Bible to divide, define your ultimate truth and you don't seek any sources outside the Scriptures to define your truth, you're, then you're by definition Christian. You have found the way and you're now following that way that was illuminated by Christ Himself. So recognition of this truth is vital. It's what we do. It's our missions. Our missions isn't just to go out and connect with people. Our missions isn't just to go out and, and, and try to sympathize or empathize with people. Those are good things. Our mission is to share a vision of God given by the Scriptures to us. That's what we're there to do. It's all, it's all our missions really is. While the truth that, that Peter speaks of explicitly informs our hearts and enables sanctifying growth. It does that. It informs our hearts. We get our truth when we are surrendered to it. We get our truth from Christ through the Scriptures. We do that. At the same time, it is the enabling work of our sanctification. Um, I won't try to characterize sanctification at this time because I'll definitely leave something out. But at the very least, we can agree sanctification is this. Sanctification is when God tells us through the Scriptures that something is wrong that we do. We repent of that fact and we set our hearts and our minds to not do that again. That is a building block of sanctification. And I would add this. Without this, without the Scriptures, how do we know these things are wrong? We find ourselves back in Genesis when we don't have the Scriptures. Uh, Adam and Eve uh, Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed and hid themselves. God's response is, who told you that you were naked? And that is, we misunderstand that statement. By definition, naked is without clothes. What God's asking is, who told you that it's wrong to be naked? Who made you a moral judge? Because see, without the Scriptures, we become the moral judges of everything. Without the Scriptures, we decide based on our own benefit, don't we? God has drawn this line hard and fast all the way through cultures. God doesn't care if the culture of India disagrees with His Scripture. It's not important to Him. He decided He gets to decide. God doesn't care if the culture of the United States disagrees with the Scripture because God has decided these things. We will, either, we will either submit ourselves to them or we will face the wrath of God. So He's given us the standard by which we live. That's the Scriptures. That's how we are sanctified because He tells us some things are wrong. And it's our job to hear His Word and stop. Look, we should understand that God's ongoing effort to liberate souls from the dominion of sin and to establish them firmly in the faith is the work of knowledge. Knowledge is vital. We come and we study in this way. We don't just have happy hoot nannies. 
We come and we take out the scriptures and I would remind everything. There's one governing thing. I think it's one of the great things about coming to church with your Bible. You know what it is? When you're sitting there and you're thinking, you have to be reminded that God's word's on your lap. God's word's in your hand. You can't just think whatever you want to. You can't just see the world the way you want to. Because right here is the word that not only God inspired, he breathed. But that people shed real blood to see delivered into our hands. It limits what we're able to think and do. The scripture does. It's that vital, that powerful. That knowledge is the reason why we gather because knowledge changes. When you find out, when you're truly a believer and you find out that first time God shows you how wrong you are, what happens? You're shocked. You're broken. You weep. Why? Because knowledge intervened in your false peace. Knowledge is vital. Knowledge is so important. The gospel is this knowledge. It impacts upon human hearts. Look, this is how men and women change their lives. They sit down and hear the word preached and taught. This is how lives are changed. There's not any fancy way to do it. There's not any weird way to do it. You can do anything you want. You can try any crazy notion. But until people will just sit down and hear the word of God, their lives remain stagnant. They remain status quo. When, when our ears are turned on and our hearts are attuned and God widens everything and we start to hear the biblical truth, everything changes. The person who's been set in their ways a hundred years can change overnight by that vital and powerful truth. So we don't neglect it. We can't neglect it. Look, your church services, no matter where you go, where God leads you, whatever you're blessed to lead in whatever way, doesn't matter. Your church services can never become more complicated. More complicated than the preaching and hearing of God's Word. It's not just all we've got, folks. It's all we'll ever need. There's no program in this world that ever did anything for anybody. But God's Word has built Christendom. We study it on our own. God enables belief and understanding which alters people from the spirit outward. Heart and the spirit change by way of the preaching of the gospel and what happens before long. The whole man, the whole woman is brand new. Someone who is full of hate now is full of the love of Christ. Someone who is full of lust is now full of holiness. God changes things. Paul addresses this idea when he writes in 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. This is just your example. So all this is is just an example from the scriptures. Paul says... First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Father, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now we have a, a couple of things we need to talk about before we start to really flesh this passage out. And it's important. I don't leave any of it out. As I, I said in your notes, because Paul's words are scripture, we should address every issue, even if it's not the one we've really come here to directly talk about. But I think they all play in together. We just don't skip over scripture. If we, if we bring it up, we better talk about what that scripture says. For as I can tell from reading, 
Going all the way back at least to Ezra and Nehemiah. That's really all preaching was. Was reading the scriptures and explaining it to the people. It's really all it was. So we've got a couple of things going on. He says, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For all people. Then he says, who desires all people to be saved. Now, these are heavyweight passages that have taken out of their context and out of understanding can lead us um, maybe to some infutility, or some, not infutility, some futility in our prayer and also some, some strange conclusions within the pages of Scripture. So we need to talk about those things before we, you know, before we move on. Um, let's look at it this way. When he says things like, for all people, that can be taken two ways. Context will determine that, okay? For all people can mean every single person on the planet. Prayers, intercessions, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving for every single person on the planet. Get busy. Because there's a lot of them. There's seven and a half billion. At least. And they're having new ones every day. It's a tall order, isn't it? To be able to pray for every single person. If you take this to mean you, you're going to be praying and doing nothing else the rest of your life. Now prayer is a wonderful vocation. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. But now, it can be interpreted other ways. And like, for instance... Uh, there's Brother Brian in the back back there. Brother Brian, like myself, labors at the schoolhouse. Right, brother? A lot. A lot. You can walk in your classroom, and you won't do this the first week. But by Christmas, you're probably doing this every time. You either walk in your classroom and look to see if everybody's there. Or you walk in your, in your, in your uh, classroom and you ask the question, is everybody here? Because like all of us, children love to keep up with each other more than themselves, right? And they will, in a second, tell that somebody's not there. When you say, is everyone here, you don't mean all 7.5 billion people, right? You mean everybody that, that belongs in that classroom, okay? You mean a predetermined number of people that are assigned there. And in fact, if you've got 22 in your role and you've got 23, you've got the opposite problem, right? Somebody's where they don't belong. And you have to deal with that. I've had that one on more than one occasion. Kids just get confused. You know, they just do it. So, so we're, now we're whittling that down. We're, we're deciding what does God mean by this. Because right after that, he does something unique. He says, for kings and all who are in high position. So what he's done right now is he's limited further. First off, it's limited Mainly to our knowledge, as, as one commentator said. I mean, you can pull out the phone book and start praying A to Z if you want to do that. But he's not entirely sure that context here dictates that you have to absolutely pray, even for everyone in your own town. I'll tell you this much. If you want to pray for everybody in Mize, that's fantastic. There's 309 of them. You can do it. If you're fast, you could just about do that every time you pray. You can just about do it every time you pray. At the very least, could you pray every time you pray for every member of this church? Sure could. Sure could. When I do it, I pray by location. I imagine myself sitting here and looking out at you, and I know right where everybody sits. And I pray by location. 
It's a wonderful thing to do, to pray in that fashion. So if there's one thing we can take from this is we need to expand our view of prayer. Expand who we pray for and how often we pray for them. That praying for people has always been a time. He limits it and he says what? Pray for, pray for kings and all who are in high position. Now, we've talked about this and we do this a lot. We pray for the president. We pray for government. We pray for leadership. We do that all the time. But I think now what Paul's given us in this passage is the reason why we do that. Because we were praying before, brothers and sisters, because God told us to. Now we're praying because God told us to. And here, through, the, through Paul, he illuminates why it's so vital that we do that. I want to show you, and it's, it's in the notes. Um, first, let me backtrack a little bit. He begins by saying the church prays offensively and aggressively. If you, want to, hey, if you want to take this passage and apply knowledge to your daily life, pray, and I don't mean offensively to offend. I mean offensively like, like you're trying to get somewhere. Like your prayers are important. That your prayers are vital to the success of the church. Understand this, because they are. Because they are. If we are not praying those kinds of prayers, God's not answering those kinds of prayers. Offensively and aggressively. We use prayer not as a fallback measure, but as an offensive and aggressive and an aggressive weapon against the powers of darkness. Prayer is power for us. Prayer is a pleading. We beg for people. That's supplication. We're literally begging for people. Now look at me. You know this. Because everybody in this room has prayed a begging prayer for themselves. Right? Now, I will say there were some wasted prayers because when you were 15 or 16 years old, you prayed that nobody would find something out. Even though they needed to know. Right? And that one probably wasn't granted, was it? Eventually he found out and you got what was coming to you. But the fact of the matter is, we're used to praying to praying prayers in which we beg God because we've been doing it for ourselves all the time. And what he says here through supplication is, why in the world are we begging for each other? You get a brother or sister sick, beg for them. You get someone in marital crisis, you beg for them. Somebody in financial crisis, you beg for them. What happens to our church if somebody has a problem and everybody else begs for them? Not, oh, please God, you know, answer their prayers. Not that. But we really do what we would do for ourselves. Instead of praying in that selfish way that we've been praying our whole lives, we start praying with that much passion for other people. Supplication. Literally begging. Begging. Intervention. We pray prayers of intervention. When we've got brothers and sisters that are on the wrong path, we pray, we pray that we are in the way. That God places us or someone else or all of us in the way so that we don't lose brothers and sisters. There's nothing harder than, than leading the church or to be honest with you, going to the church and being a part of the church than losing people. And knowing that you lost them for every wrong reason. They can blame anybody in the world and they can, they can throw everybody under the bus, but the reality is they chose wrong. Allow us to intervene. Please, God. It's another prayer. Also, prayers of thanks. We thank, we're, we pray thankful prayers for each other. 
If, if a brother or sister is blessed financially, a brother or sister is blessed with a child, a brother or sister is blessed in any way, what do we do? We pray prayers of thanksgiving because that means we're all blessed. All of us. Look, the church is, and we also pray for all kinds of people. We pray for our family and our friends, our acquaintances, our enemies, our strangers, etc. We don't limit our prayer to just those who necessarily have our last name. Or, or eat at our table. Our prayer begins there, but doesn't end there. Because prayer is offensive and prayer is aggressive. The church's knee labor, I mean prayer, specifically targeted at governmental leadership. Specifically targeted at the governmental leadership. Because in the context of the first century, the poor and politically powerless were coming to Christ in huge numbers. There was a lot of them, and they had no influence whatsoever. There was a lot of them, and they wouldn't be able to change their lot for, th for, for 300 years. They would pray this prayer for the first 300 years of the church. Because this is a, this is a, a, a faith that was going to be fully outlawed in no short time. The man who writes it martyred for his faith. We need to understand that. So they targeted leadership because winning a leader is so important to the flourishing of the church. This is not done. Uh, this praying is not done only for uh, completely selfish reasons to ensure the tranquility of life that each believer ought to crave. We don't just pray this because he says we'll have peace out of it. We'll receive peace from this. It's a calmness of life defined by God, glory, and piety and biblical seriousness. We praise this because we are seeking holiness and because we want to be serious about the faith. It's a kind of a lark, folks, that we've added to our prayers. And Paul says it's the, one of the most vital cogs in how the kingdom grows. Because you've got to win the president. I, I was going to tell you all this. I remember very distinctly when David Hayes and I went to Harbin, China, up in the, up in the head of the chicken in China. It was the most open for the gospel place that we went because the, the governor over that area was a Christian. So shop owners who were Christians hung Christian signs in Chinese in their shops. They didn't hide anything. They didn't have to. Harbin was a city open to the gospel because the leadership was open to the gospel. Harbin, the university, allowed uh, a uh, Christian professor to share his faith in his classes. We can't do that here. But they can do that in China. Because the governor was one. The leadership was one. See how vital that is? I've given you the lecture before. Why go to Greece for the, for the gospel? Because it's a great language for relating the truth. Why go to Rome? Because they got great roads. God wins aspects of the world so that he can further the gospel. So praying for leadership. Get a Christian president. Get a Christian governor. Get Christian leadership. Get a Christian legislature. See what happens. See what happens. Pray for that. Dare to pray. The work of prayer is done not to enable us to live in ways which are leisurely but purposeful and strategic for the gospel message. Christian leadership opens the world for gospel expansion. 
We please God when this is our mission because it allows for the church to live in a non-contradictory fashion. A life of holiness and separation from the world and faithfulness to the word of God and approach the gospel with a serious dedication to teaching and sharing the truth of the entire world. We want the world open for us to live like Christ so that when we live like Christ, we can demonstrate the gospel, we can preach it and live it for everybody to see. When we have to stay hidden in places, the gospel is whispered and not proclaimed. Whispering's great, and God won part of the world through whispering, but God is, is eminently glorified when the gospel is proclaimed, when it's shouted from the rooftops. Paul ends this passage with the declaration of the statement of God's desire for gospel salvation to spread to all people groups around the world. And this redemption is through knowledge. So, so one of those aspects of all people is every kind of people. God, all Paul is doing right here is reaffirming the missional statements in the gospels. Go forth and share the gospel to every kind of person. That's what happens when we pray for leadership. But what else? God's got so much more. In 2 Peter 1.12, Peter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Look, he expresses his commitment to remind the church of the truth. Now, I say that because I don't think we need to apologize for it any longer. A significant portion of what we need to do when we come into this room is remind you of what you already know. It's not break new ground. Not try to find fancy new ways. But remind God's people they already know and they're already supposed to be practicing. Peter said, I mean, Peter says it. He's, he's going to remind them. They're going to get constant reminders. He's preached which impacts the sanctification of God's people. Uh, Peter affirms what the church of 2020 must understand. The most beneficial preaching consistently prods the mind of the church to reestablish the dominance of biblical instruction. Every time we come together, you right there don't need to be encouraged nearly as much as you need to be reminded of who God is and why you and I should serve Him. It's the most vital thing we do. Be reminded of the glory of God, the majesty of God, the perfection of God, and the lowliness of man. You know, here's the thing. You hang out in church, folks, and, and, and I do it, and I know I have, and, and I'm repentant of it, but I can be arrogant, and I can be, and I can be prideful. And, and listen, we know each other well enough, and I can say it, so can you. And if we all were reminded constantly of the gospel, there's no way to be like that if you're reminded of the gospel. There's no way to be anything in the presence of God but humble. There's no way to be anything in the presence of God but submissive. Why? Because we're reminded constantly that Christ bore our sins to the cross. That He did what we could not do. What we were always unable to do. What would have condemned us, He corrected. We believe that if we're constantly reminded of that, we're constantly put in a position where God can and does use us. Believers need to be constantly reminded of the gospel, the power of God to restore, remake lives in His image, and the need to constantly labor for the deliverance of those caught in sin. Constantly labor for the deliverance of those caught in sin. Church, don't take your eye off the goal. He did not call us out of darkness and into light to make nice houses. 
He did not call us out of darkness into marvelous light to, to retire well. He did not call us out of darkness into marvelous light to, uh, to enjoy ourselves and have great recreation. He called us out of darkness into marvelous light to win the loss to the cross. That's why He did it. And if we are thinking in our lives of anything else but winning the lost to the cross, then we have lost our way as believers. Because there's nothing in the scriptures that do not point God's people toward his cross. There's nothing. A church that is not reminded, as Peter speaks of, is a church that's degenerated into a collection of special interest groups who want their way submitted in the preaching and instruction of the church. They want to talk about marriage and family, child rearing, life, women's issues, men's needs, etc. Whatever. A bunch of hoopla. I'll tell you this much. We'll talk about marriage and family till we die. We'll talk about life and women and men and all these things. But we'll always talk about it in terms of the gospel. Do you know what the answer to abortion is? The gospel of Jesus Christ saving souls. So death is abhorrent to God's people. That's the answer. You know what the answer to marriages falling apart is? Vital, powerful Christian faith. That's the answer. That's the answer. It's the answer always. The answer to, to the to problems of women and the problem of men is the gospel. We'll always preach those things in light of the gospel. Because if it doesn't serve the gospel, it's got no business in the church. If it doesn't promote the gospel, why is the church involved in it? Can't answer that question. To accomplish these matters, to remind and to establish the church and the truth means to preach the gospel in every doctrine and by every verse. We hold up Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior in every verse of the Bible. And every man who's preached through any book in this Bible, and I'll be honest with you, a lot of books in this Bible have been preached through. We wanted to show you the cross in every verse. The only way to grow mature church is through mature and comprehensive preaching, and the church must demand it. Let me tell you, folks, if I let you down in the pulpit by not preaching as hard and as com comprehensive as I can, if I don't come in here and deliver the cross for you, call me down on it. Call me down. Because I'll tell you this much, most of the church has gone the opposite direction. Why is preaching in so many places so shallow? And so soft and never cutting and not genuine. And be honest with you, a bunch of nonsense hiding under the guise of gospel preaching. Why is it like that? The church, the gathering in that particular place has asked for that kind of preaching. The man who crawls up in the pulpit, and I mean slinks into that pulpit. That man has decided to give in and give people what they say they want. That's what he's decided to do. He's done it out of fear, out of weakness, or through an unconverted heart. The pastor has surrendered his pulpit to desecration. May this never happen in our sanctuary. And I'll tell you this much. The only way to ensure that this doesn't happen in our sanctuary is if the pulpits demand the gospel. Do you understand that? Excuse me, if the pews demand the gospel. Do you understand that? You're vital because you hear it. Because you hear it. You're vital. Finally, Paul writes in Galatians 3, 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The preaching of the apostle is the constant affirmation of the biblical doctrines of salvation 
by faith alone, through the gospel alone. The words of God saved Abraham, of whom it is written in Genesis 15, verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And they cry out to our hearts in power today. The very same words of God cry out to you today that cried out to Abraham. The very same. It is by knowledge of the truth that wonderful folks' intersection of the human heart with the miraculous power of that can only happen because of the direct action of God through the Holy Spirit. A heart that was stone deaf is made fleshy and hearing because God works. Because His promises to Ezekiel are prophecies for His people. That men and women are saved today. They're saved by this. That the lives of billions are transformed. That the infinite state of man comes to the eternally condemned by their sin. And that Christ is infinitely and epically glorified. Every time a sinner repents of his sins and believes the gospel. Every time a man or a woman turns their life on a dead way to the living God. Every time that happens, God is eternally glorified. The crux of the gospel message is that in response to our utter inability to love God caused by our sin, Christ came in fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus, the Son of God, lived perfectly and died a death not for His own sins, He had none, but on the cross for the sins of a world that hated Him. And folks, after three days... Our Savior rose from the dead. He encouraged His people and then ascended to the right hand of His Father. And I promise you this, believers, there Christ lives today to make intercession for the people that He has called to Himself His church. Worldwide and global, God's people are being interceded for by Christ Himself. This truth simply stated and the entire witness of the Scriptures, which is the definition of the Gospel because it speaks of Jesus and Him alone. If you believe that, your soul will be saved. Paul explains in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing through the Word of God. Will you today believe the Word of God? I'll say this, from this pulpit... Speaking for all three men that occupy it, we will never stop reminding God's people of their liberation through the truth of God. And we will never stop preaching grace by faith from this pulpit until the number of God's people called is complete. We'll never stop reminding you of what makes you, you in Jesus. Believe today, please. Be numbered among those for whom Christ died. For whom He rose and whom He now intercedes for. Believe before it's too late. Let's pray together.